in a traditional context of practicing, we come into practice with understanding first generosity, then integrity, and then meditation. And being Western people and from America, we do it backwards. (laughs) 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 We come in and like to meditate. And then after meditating for a few decades, we begin to work out that actually having some integrity does make some sense. And then maybe after a few more decades, we begin to have a feeling for generosity and how these things all connect up. When in a traditional context, we start the meditation with taking refuges and precepts, then what it is is we start with aligning ourselves with something which is much, much, much bigger than the immediacy of our own personal world and our own personal stories. And this connects us with a field of awareness that we can tap into. It connects us with a whole body of teachings and a way of being with things that is not personal and connects us with a whole field of aspiration that has been going on for thousands and thousands of years that we are not alone in this journey. We are connected by the brothers and sisters who have walked before us and we are connected by the our brothers and sisters who walk beside us in our own endeavor to wake up. (coughs) And yet, being Americans, we like to do it our own way. And so we come in because we like to meditate, and then after a while, we begin to get a feeling for how these other pieces connect together and how important they are. And so, um, having a day-long retreat, it felt right just to go in and start meditating. And then after a little while, when we are sitting for a short while, it begins to feel like, oh yeah, what about refuge? How do precepts and integrity help support us? How is it that our own generosity gives us a context that allows us to continue to keep showing up, even when things are not the way we'd like them to be? So... Whatever which way we get there, we end up here. (laughs) And that's not a bad place to be. That's a good place to be. So if we just take a moment and consider what refuge is, you know, it's not about bowing down to something external. It's about really connecting with a place of safety, of sanctuary, of something which is not dependent on conditions being any particular way. And that's a really important thing to connect in with. Particularly in our world where so much of our sense of who we are seems to come from our own intention and action and volition. And it's not that often that we feel that what we are connecting into is something that's timeless. It's something that is reliable. And that is something that doesn't change depending on the changing circumstances around us. So to touch into refuge, into the refuge of Buddha, into the refuge of 
that which is awake, which knows, opens us up to a whole field of resource that we don't normally experience. When we touch into the Dhamma, when we touch into the legacy of the teachings, not only are we touching into this vast array of teachings that the Buddha offered as tools and as instructions and as encouragement and as ways for us to understand what our own minds and bodies are made of and how they work and how to relate to them in ways that are freeing and how when we are not relating to them in ways that are freeing the kind of suffering that results. You know, the map was pretty remarkable that was laid out. We also are touching into the, just the truth of what's happening in the present moment. And that isn't Buddhist. In fact, nobody's got a monopoly on that. As much as we would like to think that we do, we don't. The truth of what's happening in the present moment is the truth that all beings can open up to. I was just with my mom in Santa Rosa, and her next-door neighbor has a dog who's dying. And as it happened, I was there, Annie Pomo and I, my very dear sister Annie Pomo, who's just not here right now, she was there with me, and we were able to do some blessings with this dog, whose name is Annie, and her mom, whose name is Linda. And the two of them just have this exquisite connection together. And even though I can't know for sure what's going on in Annie's mind, I can sense that Annie is not worried about her own death. She's worried that Linda is going to be okay without her. And so she has a very severe illness. She's got cancer, and it's a tumor in her brain. And she is holding on to make sure that her mom, Linda, is going to be okay. You know? So this level of sensitivity and awareness and tuning in and what's actually happening right now is not limited to people. It's not even limited to animals. It seems to be part of what it is to be alive. The capacity to tune in. Different people, different animals, different beings have greater capacity to tune in. But this ability to touch the truth of what's actually happening in the present moment Nobody's got a monopoly on that. And when we take refuge in the Dhamma, we are opening ourselves up to that, to that ability to touch into the truth of what's happening right now. And when we take refuge in the Sangha, traditionally, taking refuge in the Sangha was taking refuge in the people whose lives were committed to awakening. And I feel so blessed to have another sister with me. Normally when I'm teaching, I am on my own as a solitary monastic. So Annie Tenzin has come and joined us today. And Annie Pomo is here, was here for the meal, and she'll be back towards the later part of the afternoon. She's attending to a, to a sister of hers who's also dying. And so the Sangha, the monastics, are people who have spent their lives or who are committing their lives to waking up. And yet in the Western world, in the North American world, we are the minority. We are the very, very few. There's only a few of us compared to all of you. And so if taking refuge in the Sangha means taking refuge only in the people who have ordained, 
And something about that is completely skittlywampus. Because what about all the rest of you? So taking refuge in the Sangha is in the many-fold Sangha. It's not in the ordained Sangha. And the many-fold Sangha, many-fold Sangha is a term that I have coined because the Buddha used the word the four-fold assembly and the two-fold Sangha. The two-fold Sangha was the Sangha of monks and nuns. The four-fold assembly was the assembly of monks and nuns and laymen and laywomen. But we have gone beyond binary definitions. <laughs> we don't just have two genders. And we don't only have monks and nuns. We have all kinds of intermediary stages of people who are in between lay people and fully ordained monastics. And so when we open it up to the manifold assembly, then it includes all of us. No matter what our precept commitment is, no matter what our gender is, we are all welcome. And we're in a time in our world where this is what's needed. You need to be all welcome. So when we open up to the refuge of the many-fold Sangha, then we are connecting to this universal aspiration to move out of suffering, to move into clarity, to move into a way of being free with things as they are. And it's not easy. You know, I've just been with my mom. In addition to having lost three significant people in her life in the last few months, she's also dealing with some health problems. And it's really challenging for her. Because as a phenomenally independent, courageous, outgoing, charismatic, kind of go-getter kind of a mom, you know, all of a sudden she finds herself where she doesn't want to go out. You know? Dealing with incontinence and having pee dripping in your socks is no fun. You know? And so, you know, she's dealing with all of this stuff, and it's like, you know, what do you have? How do you deal with these things? And so when we look at the aspiration to awaken, and we look at the nature of what happens to us when our bodies get older, and some of these things are no longer in our control, then we need to support each other, and we need to come into relationship with what is it that we can rely on? What do we have to rely on? So in this way, the refuge in Buddha or the refuge in awakening, the refuge in Dhamma or the refuge in the truth of the way things are, the refuge in the Sangha or the refuge in the movement towards what is all-pervasive, what is unconditioned, what is free from suffering, what is truly, genuinely, profoundly loving is what these refuges hold. And even for an afternoon together, they have revelance. 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 <laughs> so there's the refuges and then there's the precepts. And the precepts is a container that just gives us some sense of boundary about how is it that we can live and walk in this world so that we don't get so confused? And dealing with the kind of decisions that we have, the kind of choices that we have, the kind of impact. Having some clear ground is really helpful because a lot of what we experience a lot of the time is groundless. 
we don't have ground, the groundlessness feels absolutely intolerable. So have clear ideas about what behavior is acceptable and what behavior is not acceptable. Then gives us capacity to deal with all this other stuff which feels groundless. So the precepts of non-killing, non-harming, refraining from taking what's not given, not stealing, refraining from sexual misconduct, or having an appropriate relationship with our whole world of sensuality, what that is like. How we use sensuality in a way which is supportive, or how we use sensuality in a way which is a strategy to cope with all the things that we're not coping with very well. How we use our speech to support, to bring people together, to build community, or to gang up, to divide, to have a feeling of belonging at the expense of somebody else. And how unbelievably excruciatingly painful that can be. And how we use drugs or our intoxicants. You know, what is our relationship with sobriety? And how impactful that is. Last week when I was teaching a retreat, a, a young woman came up to me and she was saying, you know, I'm young. And the people who I hang out with smoke pot. And what do I do? When I smoke pot, I feel confused. And when I don't smoke pot, I don't feel connected to my friends. And I said, there are times when we have to make difficult choices. What is it that you really value? I can't make the choice for you, but I can help you to see that the choices that you're going to make are going to have consequences. And you're going to have to feel the effect of them. What's important to you? You So the precepts is not a kind of religious do-goody mini-mini land. It's actually a way of creating an external uprightness so that we can relax. It's creating a way that we have some framework or foundation that we know what our level of integrity is, which really helps in certain situations when we are forced with difficult choices. What do we make priority? So, refuges and precepts and generosity. And generosity is not only about supporting community, it's not only about supporting people who are teachers, it's not only about supporting your neighbors, it's about showing up when it's not easy. Actually being willing to attend to what's going on when what you're experiencing is not what you want to be experiencing. That is generosity. And so we need to bring forward that whole spirit of generosity because even in a couple of hours we can see stuff that we don't want to see. You know, grubbiness or tiredness or crabbiness or crankiness or stiffness or aggravation or loops that are going on and no matter what we say, they don't stop. They still keep going. 
the generosity to come forward and to attend and to be present with what is arising and to move towards responding to it with skillfulness and to be vigilant against not responding to it with unskillfulness. None of us need to be shamed anymore. That's done. We've been there, we've got the t-shirt, and it doesn't work. We don't need to be judged, we don't need to be slandered, we don't need to be berated, we don't need to be terrorized or intimidated, we don't need to be bullied, we don't need that anymore. It does not work. And so there has got to be a genuine, wholehearted commitment to not moving into those habits, which for some of us are very deeply ingrained. That's the wallpaper. So to take the precepts is to make a stand and say, no, I am no longer going to be moving into these patterns that I know do not serve me or anyone else any longer. And it doesn't mean that we all of a sudden with a magic wand become perfected at it. But it means that we can be committed to not enacting it. And that is what's needed in order to release some of these things. So refuges and precepts and generosity then holds the space for the meditation to develop and to unfold. And for all of us to know that we have a place. It does not matter what our gender is. And it does not matter what our precept commitment is. We all have a place. And we support each other. Each of us, in our own commitment to be present with what's arising, makes it possible, a little bit more possible, for everybody else to do the same. Now I'd like to do another guided meditation. And this time I'd like to help bring focus of using the body as a way of dealing with the emotions and the thoughts that we have. Because that's the thing that normally knocks us off our seat. That's the thing that normally gets us really off balance. So it's lovely that we can walk on the grass, and it's lovely that we can sit silent, but when we actually have stuff that we need to think through or process or feelings that hurt, stuff that lands... We don't necessarily have the resources how to deal with that. So before we settle in, if anyone needs to stretch out your legs or your knees or whatever, because we're going to be in sitting for a few minutes, please take the time to do that.
So once again, connecting with the sitting posture. And really what is so helpful is to find a way of sitting that just feels yummy. You know, that just feels like so comfortable and so easy and so relaxed and yet upright. And for me, there is a magic, kind of like a, an uplift, a, a, a kind of a, a, a place of balance that almost allows the spine to elongate on its own. You know, one of the tremendous gifts of the Tibetan tradition is they have maps of subtle energy bodies and the way it connects with the mind that is very sophisticated. We can learn from each other. And within the maps of the Tibetan tradition, there's the central channel, which is a column that initially starts through the center of the spine. And one of the reasons why there's an importance in bringing the balance and alignment into the body posture is so that the central channel can be unimpeded. And in different types of practices and meditation, this takes on a a whole life of its own. And so whether or not you have direct experience of this, of what I'm talking about, when we bring the body into the balance alignment, then it allows the possibility to learn or to know or to experience this. So for me, there's an uplift that comes when my spine is aligned in the right way, coming out of a sacrum that's in the right relationship with the floor. And the sacrum is never locked. It's always rocking. So the in-breath and the out-breath, there's always a very subtle rocking movement of the sacrum. It's not frozen. And then when the top of the sacrum, the top of the pelvis, is just slightly tilted forward of the sitting bones on the in-breath, then the spine has the greatest opportunity to elongate, uplift, and feel this kind of magic space where it feels effortless to sit up. And that's what we're looking for. Relaxed, upright, balanced, and effortless. Really to give signals that all of the big muscles don't have to work. They can relax, they can rest, because the body is being held up through engineering rather than through musculature. Through the structure of the spine. So, to have the capacity to work with thoughts and emotions, there has got to be groundedness. We have got to be rooted in awareness. 
and rooted in our body. We have to know what our body is feeling and allow attention to stay connected to that and return to that again and again and again and again. So whether it is the actual posture of sitting or the breath in sitting or the whole body breathing, what is more important than this specific object is that you feel very comfortable in where your attention is resting. Feeling the whole body sitting here, noticing the space that it occupies, feeling the connection with the earth, has got to be that we have attention that is grounded and something that is stable reliable and what we can return to in order to work with things that are more complicated evocative and have more charge in them Allowing the body to be an anchoring point, a resting point for attention to return to. Settle there. To feel our body, not to think about our body. To know body as direct experience rather than as idea. And so we can allow attention to be resting in the body and then open up the field of awareness to include thoughts or emotions as they arise and to know them. First, registering that they're a thought or an emotion. And then seeing if you can feel the physical correlate of the thought or the emotion in your body. How in your body do you know that you are feeling this or thinking this? And let your attention stay with the physical correlate in your body related to the thought or the emotion.
And so if you notice a thought that's arising, just attend for a moment to it as a thought. And then see if you can experience how you are feeling that thought or what the effect of that thought is in your body. And then stay with the body, not with the thought. And watch what happens to the thought when you do that. Be very attentive to the body. What shape, what color, what movement, what direction is the sensation in the body as you are attending to it? Notice if there is any tightness or tension that starts to accumulate in the body and soften around it. Open it, relax it, release it. Move into it gently with care and attention. And if there's no thought or there's no emotion or there's nothing happening in particular that's strong, just stay with the body, the deliciousness of breathing in and breathing out. Don't need to conjure anything up. Don't need to be looking for something. Just present when there are thoughts or emotions that are arising. And when they're not, settling back into the body, feeling the body, feeling the breath in the whole body. Sometimes in a context of having a couple of hours of meditation and things get very still, nothing does come up. And we can enjoy the stillness. We can make good use of the stillness. We can allow the stillness to really nourish This is very skillful. And sometimes what's also very skillful is to make use of the stillness in order to work with the things that are evocative. 
to bring to mind something that happened that really had a charge in it. Maybe not a huge charge, maybe a little bit of a charge. And see what happens when you bring this to mind, evoke it. What happens when you allow your attention to rest with the body experience rather than absorb into the story, the content, the people, your relationships, what it means, the implications. Just coming into the body experience where it landed. How did you feel it? And when there's tension, relaxing it. When there is grasping, moving around some space, becoming spacious around it. When there is not wanting, embracing. So what's important is is that we use the body as a frame of reference, as an anchor, as a place where attention can rest, where we can ground our experience and release some of the complexity that comes with thought and emotion. Returning to very simple principles, relaxing around tension, finding spaciousness around grasping, embracing what we are aversive to, and not identifying with the story of what's going on. Jim and I have been talking about this day long for many months. And when we were talking about theme, about what would be helpful, he was saying that what was really helpful was to have ways of practicing in daily life. So I thought, well, that's a good thing. It's a very good thing. But you know, one of the places where we get really um, kind of caught out is just that the silence is so yummy. We so love it. It's so delicious. And it's so nice not to have to deal with anybody else's what they're saying. 
you know. It's so, what a relief, you know. And yet, how often... Mama? How's that? Is that okay? Okay. Um, this thing, it's supposed to be around my ears, is that the deal? Yeah. Okay. I think maybe that's better. That's better. So, um, one of the places where it's hard for us is when we're actually talking with each other. It's like there's there's not a whole lot of um, ways that we know how to do that and actually stay uh, grounded and stay with our practice. Um, how many of you have heard of Gregory Kramer in Insight Dialogue? Well, I, I was on a retreat of his a couple of years ago. Um, it was an Insight Dialogue retreat on dependent origination. <laughs> it was absolutely magnificent. Just magnificent. Anyway, I was really excited by what he was doing, and so I asked if I could be part of the teacher's council. And just recently have been invited to that process. So of uh, developing more insight dialogue um, skills to bring that into retreat. So Gregory gave me permission to teach on retreats, and I have been doing that. Usually there's a a segment of insight dialogue that I do on the retreats that I'm teaching. So insight dialogue, for those of you who are not in the know, is a way of bringing the qualities of meditation into the process of communication. Okay. Now, interestingly enough, most of the people who are really, really, really super-duper committed meditators don't come to the insight dialogue retreats. And so when I was thinking, or when Gregory and I were reflecting on, well, why is this so? And we came to the conclusion that the people who are super-duper meditators don't like to talk to people. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's why they don't come to the Insight Dialogue Retreats. And then the other reason why is because people have um, had a misunderstanding about what Insight Dialogue is. The big insight dialogue is a process of bringing mindfulness to communication. And that's a very superficial and wrong understanding. It's about stabilizing the qualities of meditation through communication, rather than just bringing mindfulness to the process of speaking with others. Okay? So it is evocative to sit in front of another person and talk to them. Hands down. Agreed. But just because it's evocative doesn't mean that it's a good thing or not a good thing to practice with. And when we're talking about bringing practice into our daily life, how often do you have four-hour chunks of time where you're not talking to people? You know? It's like, when is this situation actually mirrored in our regular life situation? It's not. It's a specific situation that happens only on retreat. So part of the chasm is is, is that we are taking a meditation practice which is internal into a world which is external. And we don't actually know how to bring these two things together. 
But the brilliance of Inside Dialogue is just that it does exactly that. It was exactly designed to do that. Where we're not absorbing into what's happening in the other person, but using our stability with our own body and our own awareness to be in relationship with oneself and other. And to watch what arises from that. So, um, we have a little bit less than an hour and a half left. And I would like to introduce Inside Dialogue and see what happens in your practice when you are trying to stay with your own body experience as you are relating to another living, breathing person who's speaking in front of you. It's not easy. I mean, it was totally not easy because we have all kinds of patterns and habits and we lose ourselves and we get absorbed into the other person and we, you know, we have all kinds of habits. We want to impress them. We want to, we want to say nice things. We want the sentences to be complete. We have ideas about how we want them to perceive. All of this stuff is going on, you know. But there are ways of actually stabilizing the qualities of attention and interest and calm and relaxation so that we can begin to learn how to speak to each other where we don't lose it. Okay? And it's really valuable because a lot of our life is around relating to people and speaking to each other. And when we can relate to each other and speak to each other and still feel connected with what's going on inside, well, we get gold stars. <laughs> because the chasm begins to close about this impossible divide between retreat and daily life. So what I'd like you to do is to mix all the chairs up and the cushions up. So you need to find a person who you're looking at. So the chair people speak to chair people, and the cushion people on the floor speak to cushion people on the floor. And uh, for right now, we'll be in partners of two, and if we don't have the right number of numbers, there'll be one group of three. So find a person you feel comfortable with at the same height level, and rearrange it all so that you're optimally using the space. So come up here and sit in the corner. I'm not going to be sitting here. I'll be walking around. So if you can make sure that there's places for you, for me to walk around, that would be great. And don't, before you get lost into a long conversation, just find your partner and, and sit in a way where you're facing each other. So if you're skew-whiff or your knees crossed or you got angles to angles, change it around so that you're actually looking at each other in the face. And you can sit at whatever distance feels most useful for you. No And and before you get dissolved into conversation, hang on a moment. (laughs) Let's just see who is everybody partnered up? And, and if you can change chairs, chair orientation so that you're actually facing each other. 
So this is actually quite disciplined. This is not normal chit-chat where it's free flow. You get to talk about whatever you want to talk about whenever you want to talk about it. So this, these, are the, these are the rules. This is your magic signal, okay? When you hear this, this means either to pause or to begin. So if, you, if you've been speaking and you hear this, then everybody pauses, okay? And so the first round, I want people to practice pausing. Practice pausing. <coughs> so normally what happens in communication is we get into a flow where we want to have whole things communicated and we have an impression of what we want to say and we have an impression of how people want, we want people to receive us. And pause is to start interrupting all of that. Where, where what he's wanting to do is to come back and actually feel what we're feeling in our body as we're speaking. Okay? So the instruction is, is, is that I'd like you to pick who goes first. So there's going to be somebody who's speaking first and then there's somebody who's listening first. So the first instruction is to figure out who's speaking first. So go ahead, figure that one out. Okay. So, what I'd like the person to speak to talk about is the immediacy of what you are feeling in your body. Okay, so these are not whole sentences. These are like koans or snapshots. So, a breeze on my shoulder, ache in my hips, my feet, feel the bells. It's snapshots, and it's in present time. It's exactly what's happening right now. Now, you don't need to disclose anything that makes you feel exposed or too vulnerable. You don't need to say anything you don't feel comfortable saying. But the idea is to be absolutely in present time with what is going on inside of your body. Now, I'm going to pause you. And when I pause you, I want you to stop and be quiet and close your eyes and come back into actually feeling what's going on in your body. Because just sitting across from another person doing this is enormously evocative for lots of us. And it's hard for us to stay connected with what is going on inside of us when we're talking to somebody else. We get into ideas and stories and all all kinds of things are going on. And we lose connection with what's actually happening in our body. Now, independent of me pausing you, you can pause yourself. Which means that at any point, if you notice that you've lost connection with the immediacy of the present moment, somehow you're absorbed into the other person, you're trying to make it too fancy, you've got this whole big idea you want to convey, and you catch yourself, just stop. doesn't matter. doesn't matter if you're in the middle of trying to say something. Just stop. Close your eyes, feel what's going on in your body, and when you feel ready... Start again. So pause is pausing and interrupting our normal habits of communication so that we can actually stay completely connected with what's going on in our bodies as we're speaking and communicate directly at that.
Now, that's this person speaking. Those are instructions for the person speaking. The person listening is to listen from your body. Listen from your belly. Listen with your feet. Listen with your hands. Listen with your heart. Listen with your body as to what the person is saying and what you are registering. So the person might be saying something and what you're registering is that their eyes are blinking or that their finger is tapping or that their head is rolling. Okay? And for the person listening, same is true. You are welcome to pause yourself at any point where you get lost into story, into idea, and you lose connection with what you were feeling. Pause yourself. Close your eyes. It doesn't matter that they're still speaking. Just close your eyes. Come back into your own experience and feel what you're feeling. And then when you're ready, open your eyes and then be listening some more. Okay? So it interrupts all of the normal social patterns about having to be present for another person and make sense and, and have complete sentences and, and be okay. What we're wanting to do is to start in very simply and be able to stay connected with what is going on in our own bodies while we're speaking and while we're listening. And the primary responsibility is to stay connected with our own process, not to be there for the other person. Our capacity to be there for the other person is entirely dependent on our ability to be connected to our own process. When we interrupt that, we stop, we close our eyes, we reconnect, and when we're ready, we open our eyes again. You don't need to focus your eyes on any particular place, whatever feels easeful. So if your eyes feel easeful to stay focused, you know, on the top of their head, or on their heart, or on their face, somewhere, that's fine. But you don't need to lock eyes. Just whatever feels comfortable. And it can shift, you know, so whatever feels comfortable. So are instructions clear? Are there any questions? So the instruction for both is pause. That's the meditation instruction for both, is to pause. And the person speaking is speaking from the immediacy of what's happening in your physical body. And the person listening is listening from different parts of your body. And then I will stop you and then we'll change sides. Okay? So, this call is to begin. So, when you hear this bell, what I'd like you to do is close your eyes. And when you hear the bell in your own time, when you feel ready, the person who's speaking can begin speaking. But really take your time. There is no rush. Make sure you're speaking from that place of settledness inside of yourself rather from an idea about what you're supposed to be doing. Okay? It's very different. Very different from what we normally do. And very important. 
So the instruction is paused and the speaker and the listener are listening and speaking from the immediacy of their own body. When you hear the bell, begin in your own time when you're ready. The tradition that I um, spent many, many years in was the Ajahn Chah tradition. And Ajahn Chah was really brilliant at um, kind of cutting through the idea that the monastics were the ones that meditated and the lay people were the ones that offered the food and to get everybody to start meditating. And then, you know, you could see the village women who, you know, they spend, you know, 15 hours a day in the field and they come home and they... They come to the monastery and they spend all night in the monastery. They're just absolutely upright. You know, their their practice was remarkable. You know, but Ajahn Chah was unusual in being able to encourage the peasant lay people into the monastery to meditate. And he was brilliant that way. You know, very very accomplished in his ability to do that. So for ourselves, we need to find where actually do we locate a sense of um, stability. And, you know, what is it connected to? 
And, you know, we're in a time where there's lots of things that are shifting and changing. And our sense of um, cohesiveness with tradition or with whatever is shifting and changing. And so, you know, what used to be the stuff that would hold us together for sure is all of a sudden maybe not so sure anymore, you know. And so for me, the thing that has held me through the changes that I've been through, and I've been through some remarkable changes, is that quality of being present with what is, and a deep abiding sense of trust in the, in the unfolding um, practice, that when I move towards something with care and kindness and respect, that, that leads to a good result. And when I move towards something with tension or tightness or fear or contraction, it doesn't lead to a good result. And when I can abide in a place of groundlessness with all of the myriad of shifts and changes that are taking place, just with awareness itself. I've been through a couple of times where it felt like, you know, everything was dissolving. Everything was dissolving. And yet awareness doesn't dissolve. And so the ability to just know that everything is dissolving with awareness was enough to stay through that disillusion process until form and structure and context and relationships started to shift and form and solidify and, and create something that was a little bit more sustainable and reliable. But, you know, the path has been offered as a path that we can use for support. We don't only have awareness. You know, so there's right view and right thought and right action and right speech and right livelihood, right concentration and right mindfulness as supports to develop, to help us sustain it when uh, when it's useful. Connecting with a body that feels relaxed and upright, balanced and aligned. Letting the conversation fall away, drop. And as the conversation falls away and drops away, just being able to connect again with body. So we can connect with body and we don't have to push away sounds or thoughts or feelings. But the body is a reference point that we return to again and again. had some opportunity today to work with our mind, our body, our thoughts, our feelings, working with each other, listening, speaking, 
common to the whole thing is a is a longing to be free from pain and suffering, a longing to feel joy and peace and love. So we can begin to connect with or touch our own aspiration to wake up out of pain and suffering. really understand what the release of pain and suffering is. To have peace in one's life and deep contentment. So for our own aspiration to awaken, movement out of suffering to a life where there is awareness and clarity and integrity, where the heart is open. We can bring forward a quality of loving kindness, of loving friendliness to ourselves. And for many, it's not so straightforward just to have a direct tap to this quality of friendliness and kindness to ourselves. I'm not quite sure how to access it or where it comes from what it feels like. And so if that is the case for us, then what's helpful is to bring to mind the image of someone or something that evokes that feeling of unconditioned loving kindness. Maybe it's a great master, or His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Mother Teresa, Mother Mary, Others, it's nature, it's a mountain, it's a holy place, it's the ocean or the sun. Our grandmother with her baby. And so it's not, uh, it doesn't matter where this comes from. What's just really important is that you feel a real strong connection with something, a love that has no conditions on it. Absolutely no conditions on it. We bring forward that love that has no conditions on it in an image. Feeling it, knowing it, getting a sense of what our body does with this, how it responds to this. Bringing that to ourselves, to our own aspiration to awaken.
and sharing this with each other. We spent an afternoon together practicing in silence, walking, standing, and then in dialogue, speaking and listening. That everyone here has the support that they need to cultivate the path to complete fulfillment and fruition. Our teachers, our mentors, all beings who have walked this before us, we share that with them. Our family, our friends, our colleagues, we share with them. We're spreading out, touching all beings in all directions, the ones that we know, the ones that we don't know, the ones that we like, and even the ones that have caused us pain and suffering, even the ones that have hurt us or betrayed us or harmed us in some way. Not to condone their action, but to recognize that they too are human beings that live and suffer and have a longing to be free. All beings in all directions sharing this aspiration. Sharing this unconditioned love. Sharing the support that's needed to wake up completely so that there's no trace of suffering in any form. And so that we can understand that our connection with each other is where our sense of self arises, how we shape and form ourselves. Our longing to wake up, our longing to wake up to then be a positive support to support others in waking up. like a Taurus comes through the center around to the whole world and back into itself. And so if there has been any blessings that have come from our day together, our practice together, the teachings here together, our honesty, our integrity, our generosity here together, we share that freely with all beings in all directions. But all beings everywhere can benefit from our practice our endeavor, and our aspiration. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.